Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. Ron, a few weeks ago, we wrapped up our series titled Before the Throne. In that series, we examined prophetic visions of the throne room of God from Isaiah to Revelation. After that, we took a short break, but we're back now to begin a new series, and the topic is? The topic is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Yep. We wrapped up the last series in Revelation, so Ron, in typical academic fashion, (laughs) you were reluctant to identify the author of Revelation with the author of the Gospel of John, as I recall, although I also seem to recall you said that if I caught you off guard, you'd admit you'd have no problem with that. That sounds about like something I'd say. Well, you also said there are some remarkable similarities between the books, Mm -hmm. and together with the letters of John, even academics will refer to them all as the Johannine literature. True, and we've actually already spent some time in the Johannine literature. Last season, season three, we did a series on the letter of 1 John. Yeah, well, in this series, we're turning our attention to the first and probably the most prominent of the books in the Johannine literature, the Gospel of John itself. And as a matter of fact, This isn't the first time we've spent time in the Gospel of John itself. That's right. Back in season two, we did a couple of standalone episodes. I think I chose Mark 2, the healing of the paralytic, and you chose John chapter 2, the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Yes. So if anyone just happens to want a detailed plunge into John chapter (laughs) 2, go look up that episode. If listeners want John 2 specifically, they'll have to go look up that episode. (laughs) We're planning to do this series on the Gospel itself in just four weeks, and there's simply not enough time to review every part of the book. However, what we can do is sample a few chapters. With that, we can get a clear sense of what makes the Gospel of John so distinct. And compared to the other Gospels, John is very distinct. Yeah, it is. John comes at the story in a very different way than the other evangelists, the other Gospel writers. All right. Well, I understand we're actually starting with the well-known story of Jesus feeding the Mm 5,000. Before we look at it in John, though, we're going to take a look at how the story is told in the other Gospels. Let's dive in. Ron, one does not have to be very familiar with Scripture to know at least this. There are four separate accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The four Gospels, we call them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anyone with a vague familiarity with the Gospels will probably also know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot in common, while John just goes his own way. There's even a name for that collection of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptics from a Greek word that suggests they see things the same way. Just about everything Mark has to say gets repeated in Matthew and Luke. So consistently, in fact, that modern scholars are convinced Matthew and Luke were working off a copy of Mark. The ancient world had a different explanation and tended to believe Matthew came first, but we'll leave that for another time. Then Matthew and Luke have some things they tell that Mark lacks. The Sermon on the Mount is one example. And finally, Matthew and Luke have a few things that are unique to each of them. The story of the wise men visiting Jesus, that's one example from Matthew. The story of the angels and the shepherds, and then the story of Jesus' encounter with the men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, those are two examples from Luke. 
All that said, though, there are remarkable similarities between these three Gospels. While, as we said, the Gospel of John just goes off in a completely different direction. It is crystal clear that John is telling basically the same story as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the story is about the same person. It's not a completely different story, right? True. But agreed, it gets told a very different way in John. (laughs) Right. Well, Ron, I think you wanted to work our way into this by reviewing first how Mark tells the well-known story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? Right. This comes in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples to teach. Then Mark takes a side trip and gives us the story of John the Baptist's execution. It's after that story that the disciples return to Jesus, and in Mark's version of the story, Jesus leads them off to a deserted place, presumably to get away from the crowds and rest. That plan fails. (laughs) They're recognized where they go, and the crowds quickly reassemble around them. Mark says, Jesus had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he starts to teach them, but it gets late, and the disciples tell Jesus to send the crowds away so they can find food in nearby villages. Yeah, and maybe the disciples can get their overdue rest. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Although Mark doesn't exactly say that, (laughs) what Mark does tell us is that Jesus told the disciples that they themselves should give the crowd something to eat. Yeah, and being a pragmatic group, they point out that feeding this crowd would require the better part of a year's wages. Yes, exactly. So Jesus told them to take stock of what they had. It came out to five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus has the crowd sit down. He blesses the meager rations they have. They pass it out. And miraculously, quite literally, (laughs) yes, miraculously, everyone eats their fill. It's only then that we learn there were 5,000 men there. So presumably there were more women and children. Yeah, Matthew makes that part explicit. 5,000 men besides the women and children. Okay, so that's the basic story. Yeah, that's the basic story. And what you've related is essentially as Mark gives it to us. Mark is a bit notorious for his just the facts, (laughs) ma'am, mode of delivery. Rarely does he slip into exposition. He tells you what happens and lets you draw the conclusion. Uh, We mentioned our earlier episode on Mark chapter 2. At one point there, Jesus tells the man he's about to heal that his sins are forgiven. Mark tells us the nearby scribes ask themselves, who but God can forgive sins? Mark doesn't tell us anything else. He just leaves us to draw our own conclusions. The story of feeding the 5,000 here in Mark 6 is no different. It's just the facts. Well, Ron, it might be worth mentioning there is another story where Jesus feeds a crowd, and that time it was about 4,000 people. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are two distinct events, and Mark relates both of them. That second episode comes a few chapters later in Mark 8. That's right, and in the case of that story, Matthew chooses to relate it as well. Uh, Luke, mysteriously, however, does not. Okay, well, we've reminded everyone what the story is. This is an unusual case where the Gospel of John does have a parallel account, but as we know by now, John tells it very differently. Let's go look at it. It's pure coincidence, but Mark and John both tell the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the same chapter, chapter (laughs) 6. When we get to John's version of the story, it's fairly clear we're getting the same story Mark told. There are several shared features. Large crowds are following Jesus. 
in this case, there are specifically 5,000 people, and the disciples can scrounge up only five loaves and two fish. The people are seated, Jesus distributes the food, and everyone is fed. However, we get some unique elements as well. Yes. Jesus himself prompts the questions about how the people are going to be fed. He addresses Philip first, and then Andrew joins the conversation. This is an interesting feature of the Gospel of John. Many of the stories that John tells come across as a sort of mini drama. There are various characters that come in and out of the story. Jesus is always central, but the other characters sometimes get fleshed out just a little bit more. Here, maybe not so much, but we get the names at least to Philip and Andrew. But think of other chapters, though, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus, chapter 4, Jesus and the woman at the well, and then later chapter 11, Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Okay. Well, John goes on to append the story of Jesus walking on the water, but he does it quickly, and then he seems to return to the story of feeding the 5,000. Yeah, that's an interesting twist. We've had occasion to discuss that before. The story of Jesus walking on the water immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000 in both Mark and Matthew. Luke, for some strange reason, chooses to omit it. In any case, John decides to keep it here, but it really does seem to be an aside. He comes right back to the story of feeding the 5,000, although the emphasis seems to have changed a little bit. Yes. When we get to verse 22 of John 6, Jesus is now carrying on a long discussion with the crowd. They came looking for him, and Jesus accuses them of hunting him down only because he fed them. (laughs) Then he tells them they're essentially looking for the wrong kind of food. They need to be working for food that doesn't go away, food that leads to eternal life, and that involves believing in the one God has sent. Yes, this is just one of several unique Joannine themes that crops up now. First thing. Notice that we've gone way beyond what any of the other Gospels tell us about this incident. All the Gospels tell us about the feeding of the 5,000. This is the only one where Jesus has a running discussion with the crowd. Well, at least it starts as a discussion. Soon enough, it's going to turn into a monologue for Jesus, and that's yet another unique feature of the Gospel of John. Okay, Ron, now that you bring this up, the very next thing Jesus does is to connect this miracle with the manna that God provided to the people of Israel during their time in the wilderness. Exactly. Although, to be fair, the crowd pushes him to do this. Hmm. They demand a sign so they can believe Jesus, which is silly because presumably they just saw one. (laughs) Right. But they seem to be making the connection themselves. Moses provided man in the desert. Jesus just provided bread in the wilderness. Maybe they're demanding, hey, Jesus, are you trying to tell us you're something like Moses? <laughs> yeah, and the answer they will ultimately get goes way beyond Moses. Definitely. All right. The connection to Moses and manna is an, an obvious connection to make. But the other Gospels leave it implicit. Mm -hmm. The Gospel of John now makes it explicit. It does. But when Jesus answers the crowd, he does more than just endorse this connection. Right. Jesus clarifies where the bread actually originated. The crowd suggests Moses provides the manna. Jesus reminds them that God was the one who provided. As the conversation progresses, the crowd agrees that whatever this life-giving bread is that Jesus is talking about, they want it. Then comes the big reveal. Yep, and this one is a doozy. Yeah, Jesus pronounces that he himself is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's verse 35. But he does it with what is a characteristic pronouncement for the Gospel of John. He says, I am 
the bread of life. This is so very characteristic of the Gospel of John. This is something Jesus will do throughout the book. Time after time, he will utter the words, I am, followed by something significant. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. A central question John intends to answer is, who is this person Jesus? And his goal is for others to believe it as well. There's a little more to these I am statements, though, isn't there? I knew that the Old Testament guy wouldn't <laughs> let me gloss over this. First, the I am statements read a little bit odd in Greek. If you want to say I am in Greek, you only need one word, amy. No need for the pronoun I, ego. That's true in a lot of languages. The conjugation of the verb often tells you all you need to know about the subject, and the pronouns are optional. Uh, and just so here, Jesus might have said simply, Emi haartastesoes, I am the bread of life. The way John records it, though, Jesus adds the personal pronoun and says, Ego emi haartastesoes. I am the bread of life. In normal Greek, that implies a certain amount of emphasis. Maybe I myself am the bread of life. That points to something bigger going on. And John, I'm guessing this is what you were pointing out. <laughs> I'm still waiting for you to get there. When God revealed his name to Moses on Mount Sinai, the name he revealed is roughly translated, I am who I am. Yes, the Hebrew word that's used there for I am is where we get the covenant name of God that we find all over the Old Testament, Yahweh. Well, when the Septuagint translators rendered that, the, the guys who translated the Hebrew scripture to Greek, they did it this way, ego emi ho'on, maybe I am the one who is. There is no doubt Jesus is calling back to this passage in the Old Testament, in Exodus, that becomes crystal clear in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is discussing Abraham with a hostile crowd. He finally says simply, before Abraham was, I am. He drops the object. It's just, I am. The crowd knows exactly what he means by this, and they're ready to lynch him for it. <laughs> yes. Well, coming back to this story in chapter 6, after Jesus' pronouncement, I am the bread of life, the story seems to take a very sacramental turn. Yes. Jesus first makes a clear distinction between the manna of the Old Testament and the bread of life that he claims to be. The Israelites ate the manna God provided them in the desert, but it only sustained them for a little while, like regular food does. They ultimately died. This bread of life that Jesus offers is supposed to result in eternal life, living forever. But Jesus presses it further. He will ultimately say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's verse 53. Ron, it's very hard not to see allusions to the Lord's Supper there. You know, there are some scholars that want to object and not see those allusions who want to say that Jesus was just referring to the crucifixion. The strange thing is, the Gospel of John has a very different rendering of the Last Supper, such as it is. John does not tell us about Jesus breaking bread and saying, this is my body. The closest thing we get to a Last Supper scene in the Gospel is the place where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples in chapter 13. Because of that, this right here in chapter 6 is about as close as the Gospel of John gets to sacramental language, to language that directly describes the Lord's Supper. Personally, I, I think that's what has to be going on here. This is the Johannine understanding of communion. 
participation in communion is one of the visible signs that an individual believes Jesus is the Holy One of God as Peter is about to express it, and that that person has access to eternal life that's only available through Jesus. Well, this definitely causes a stir. It even causes some divisions among those who are following Jesus. It was strange, and it was hard. In fact, some of them left him over this. The core 12 disciples stay, however, and it is Peter that basically says, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God, like you said, Ron. Right, and that's John's version of Peter's confession. In the Synoptic Gospels, what Peter says is, you are the Messiah or the Christ, the Anointed One. It was a royal designation for the kings of Israel, but it had come to carry a lot more significance than just that. Yes, and we spent a lot of time on that. You're right. Well, that confession of Peter shows up in all the Gospels, Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 9. Matthew adds the part where Jesus follows it by saying, on this rock I will build my church, but that's a discussion for another time. Here, though, in chapter 6, we get John's version. The rest of the disciples are falling away. The twelve stay by Jesus' side, though. There's something profoundly significant in what Jesus says and does. They recognize this, and behind it all, they see some way forward to something they call eternal life. After Peter's confession, the chapter concludes with Jesus foretelling his betrayal, and that completes John's version of the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Yeah, and there was a lot packed into this chapter. We got the feeding of the 5,000, the aside where Jesus walks on the water, then the majority of the chapter where John unpacks the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. We get that in the dialogue between Jesus and the crowds, but going by sheer volume of text, that's by far the largest part of the story. It concludes with a few other elements we can identify elsewhere in the synoptics. Peter's confession and allusion to Jesus' ultimate betrayal. And on top of it all, we get what sure looks like John's description of the Lord's Supper as Jesus works out the significance of the words, I am the bread of life. That's right. John, there are a lot of differences in the way John tells this story, and I'd like to highlight some of those that seem to hold true for the entire book. Sure, but before we do that, it's worth pointing out there is no doubt John is recounting the same events as the other Gospels. John may do it in a very different way, but this is ultimately the same story. Uh, Yes. In fact, it can even be said John is the same genre of literature as the other Gospels, although it's a very unique genre. The genre is Gospel. It's a story of Jesus' life and ministry concluding with a passion narrative. Uh, That is, it concludes with the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. All that said, though, John absolutely does come at this story in a very different way. One of the most obvious differences in John's presentation is how he portrays Jesus. From the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John wants us to know this is a story about Jesus, the Anointed One, who is also God become human. The identity of Jesus is absolutely central to everything John has to say. Well, that certainly came through clearly in chapter 6 with Jesus' pronouncement, I am the bread of life. Exactly. The I am statements are a core component of this. And it goes one step further. In the synoptic gospels, there are some times when Jesus does not want his identity fully revealed. In fact, it's specifically at Peter's declaration to Jesus, you are the Messiah, that all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
have Jesus instructing the disciples not to tell this to anyone. Yes, the messianic secret. Right, the messianic <laughs> secret. That's the technical term for this. There's a lot more we could say about those instances where Jesus shushes the person who wants to reveal who he is. It happens in a few other places in the synoptics. However, there is essentially no hint of a messianic secret in John. The whole purpose of the book is to reveal who Jesus is, and John has no time or inclination to deal with stories where that is not front and center. We'll have a little more to say about this in subsequent episodes. Ron, I understand there is a difference in the role that miracles play in the Gospel of John as well. John seems to pick his miracles carefully. Right. John chooses the miracles carefully and develops them more fully. Again, chapter 6 is a great example of this. We get the feeding of the 5,000, the aside where Jesus walks in the water, which is treated as just part of the core story, and then a couple pages of development. In fact, one argument is that John basically picked seven signs around which to organize the first half of the gospel. Ah, yes, that would be the water into wine, chapter two. Yeah, John explicitly refers to that as the first sign. Then the healing of the royal official's son in chapter four, the healing of the man at the pool in chapter five, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter six, Jesus walking on the water. Also in chapter six, we got a two for one in chapter six. (laughs) Yep. Uh, the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead uh, in chapter 11. That's basically it. There are some different ways to organize those. Some would say the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water was basically one sign, and the crucifixion perhaps was another. There are certainly other miraculous events at the end of the gospel. But the point is that where there are miracles left and right in, say, the gospel of Mark, John, on the other hand, chooses very deliberately which miracles to focus on. Okay, and they are specifically referred to as signs in John. They mean something. Right, and actually that's a matter on which the gospel seems to be deeply ambivalent. As Jesus reveals his identity, the thing the gospel cares most about, people start clamoring for a sign, and almost humorously they demanded it after they saw it here in (laughs) chapter 6. Jesus often seems to be exasperated by these demands. The people want a sign. It's not clear they should need it. And that ambivalence or ambiguity may be best expressed right at the end of the gospel. It's John who tells us about Thomas, who wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to them after the resurrection. He won't believe until he sees the nail marks in his hands. Ah, and when he finally does see Jesus, Jesus' response is, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Exactly. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Should we have to see these signs to believe? John doesn't seem to think so. There is one last difference worth mentioning, and this one may be a little more difficult for some people. Hmm, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The chronology and the geography in the Gospel of John is very distinct. John tells us about three different Passovers. As I understand it, we only hear about one in the synoptics. John has Jesus and the disciples shuttling back and forth between Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south. The synoptics tend to progress more or less in one direction from Galilee to Jerusalem. Isn't it possible that John was just being more precise with the chronology and the geography than the other evangelists, the other gospel writers? It 
is, but it's also possible that John considered the chronology and the geography something he could use loosely to frame the story he has to tell. That wouldn't have been unusual for the storytelling conventions of the day. Ron, I think that last observation of yours might cause some people some distress. Are you saying the chronology isn't exactly the way John narrated it? I am saying that's a possibility. John may have used the chronology and the geography as a way to frame his story, to help people remember it better. If you've ever heard that Jesus had a three-year ministry, that's based exclusively on the way John tells the story. Again, as I understand it, you'd be hard-pressed to estimate the length of time Jesus was active before the crucifixion if you only had to go on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But what I hear you saying is that this convention for telling the story was perfectly acceptable for the time. Exactly. It wouldn't have led people of the time to question John's reliability. The question that mattered is the issue John was very explicitly trying to address. Who was this person, Jesus, with whom the disciples and others interacted, who ultimately went to the cross and rose again? Well, that's where we'll have to wrap it up for this episode. I know we'll be addressing some of these questions more completely in subsequent episodes. In the next episode, we'll take a look at how John described the passion narrative, the path to Jesus' crucifixion, and we'll look at some of the resurrection appearances as well. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.